from the Bee Gees to Gloria Gaynor to the Village People, disco music transformed the airwaves during its heyday in the 1970s. And while the genre was wildly popular, it also had plenty of haters. The recent PBS American Experience episode explores the so-called war on disco, and it features big names in Chicago's music scene, including Ayana Contreras, music and content director at our sister station, Vocalo. And she joins us now to talk more about disco and the latest on what Vocalo is offering at 91.1 FM. Ayana, welcome to Reset. You know, that's just the funniest introduction. Why are you laughing? Who, me? When I say that you are one of Chicago's big names in the music scene. You're funny. You are. Oh, bless you. (laughs) Oh, take us back. I mean, where and how did disco get started and, and how did it become arguably the biggest sound in America so fast. It's it's very interesting, actually. You know, a lot of folks want to have a creation myth around it, right? So if we're going to have a creation myth around disco as we know it, I would argue it would probably was bubbling up in New York City in the early 1970s. But the term disco was applied to the idea of playing records and dancing in a club as far back as, you know, the 1960s or so. Mm-hmm. But the full term was discotheque. Like, that was the term that they yes. were using at that time. Um, you know, from there... Those sorts of clubs became popular all throughout the country, places like, of course, San Francisco and Chicago. Yeah. Well, in the PBS documentary, you talk about a a record that a store in Brooklyn picked up that became really popular across the country. Let's listen to a little bit of that. So it's got a pretty funky, familiar beat. Right. I'm still waiting for my favorite part to come. <laughs> but how did it become so popular at that time? So it's very interesting. 1972, uh, the record store African Record Center, which is in Brooklyn, uh, imported that record from France, as a matter of fact. At that time, Mano Domingo was situated in France from Cameroon originally and had this real barnstormer of a record that got picked up by a DJ, uh, Mancuso, as a matter of fact, at The Loft, which was a early disco club in New York. And the cl- it just was burning up the clubs. It was burning up the clubs. And then the radio picked it up. And then it was in people's homes all over the country, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Got distributed on Atlantic Records, one of the largest record labels in the United States at that point. But it's just such a funny, funny record that combines African rhythms and jazz and funk. Mm-hmm. It's just really beautiful gathering of sounds meeting of minds so to speak so good so good uh, i love how one person in the in the doc described the emerging genre um how, how disco could be thought of as a secularized form of gospel it could be thought of in a lot of i mean yes there's that collective so you agree of, with that the collective uh the collective i think that was adam green actually from the university of chicago yeah the uh the exhale the collective exhale especially for marginalized people but the other thing that was very interesting about disco was that it was a very cosmopolitan scene you know there's discos in rio there's discos in paris there's discos in oklahoma city mm-hmm. like this was just like a huge thing that was sort of, I don't know, I'd like to think global in some ways. And we were both kind of shaking our shoulders there, but how did those early disco songs make you feel when you listen to them now in 2023? Well, you know, the nice thing about that period, so 72, 73, 74, which I call proto-disco because it wasn't like the white suit disco quite yet. 
you know, um, very often very funky, very like liberatory, very like kind of often sort of underground and maybe even a little gritty, like Mm. very exciting music, I think. Tell us more about the role that Chicago played and how it developed. It's interesting because I wouldn't argue that Chicago was a big town for disco, but most of the biggest artists from Chicago ultimately left their mark on disco, including, you know, Earth, Wind & Fire had a number of huge hits. Even the group Chicago even dabbled their foot into it with songs like Street Players. So I think we had something to contribute. But in terms of the nightlife, there were so many clubs that ultimately became sort of prototypical of what disco was. And Mm. there was also a lot of uh, music distribution that was based in Chicago at that time, like record distribution and record pools. So they were helping to get that music out to the masses in really big ways. And and so like on a regular basis, you could go out and you could hear this stuff in the clubs. Absolutely. But different stuff in different clubs because, you know, it is Chicago and segregation is real. So, you know, even within the disco clubs, there was a delineation point between one art audience going here like a Dugan's or something or one artist going like down to what people think of as where House was ultimately born. So like there's different audiences in different places. And we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that. Uh, you uh, talk about how a lot of disco had a feminist message and, and it makes me think of this song by Gloria Gaynor. But then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong. And I grew strong. And I learned how to get along. And so you're back from outer space. I just walked in to find you here with that sad look upon your face. I should have changed. So let's let's get into that, Ayana. I mean, how did the disco scene support women, particularly women of color, in the ways that they hadn't seen the music industry do before? Well, you know, a lot of female-fronted music was really in the forefront of disco music. And I'll say as a person who's DJed for 20 years and one of my specialties is doing disco stuff from this era, uh, what I know is that the ladies hold court. Like, I can play a male group, and in rock and and, and soul and R&B, a lot of the times it's a male-centric sort of situation Mm -hmm. when people think about these historical genres. But with disco, if you want to energize the dance floor, you put on a lady who's belting it out and who is not taking anything from anyone. And mm. you think about this, you know, this happened right alongside the, the women's liberation movement. There's a lot of liberation movements happening, you know, simultaneously. And there are some anthems that came out of that. You know, that's the thing that I want to make sure that people who think about disco as being this sort of vapid uh, genre understand that yes that happened but there was also a lot of very um, powerful uh, songs that came out of it yeah and and disco was a liberation to your point for so many people but at the same time others felt that it was oppressive particularly white middle class people why <laughs> you know I think you know there were folks there were folks because I can't speak for the disco sucks contingency. I've said this a couple of times. I can't really speak for like why they attach themselves to that. And it wasn't everybody because there's definitely folks of every race, creed and culture who love disco to this very day. But there were folks who felt like it was the antithesis of what rock and roll was about. I think there was ideas of rock and roll being more egalitarian, which obviously that's not necessarily the case, you know. Mm-hmm. 
But there's ideas of, you know, the velvet rope as being exclusionary practice. You know, I mean, there's all these things. And, and so you know, you the make, materiality. What do, you, what do you make of that? I mean, I think I don't like to take, you know, people today, genre, the term genre is sort of falling out of favor when people talk about music. People love to say that they're blending genres or blurring genres. But back then, genres were much more rigid. And maybe people wanted to put these prescriptives on what genres were and what genres weren't. But if you look at the long form of it, it's always been moving targets in terms of what something was, what rock was. I mean, you think about it. There was there was sometimes a conversation about disco being, you know, like the males looked effeminate with these open shirts and the 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 polyester and the chains and all of that. But right. if you think about rock and roll in the late 1960s, sort of the peacock revolution where people are wearing feathers and velvet and all of these things. And it was just as rock as anybody. Like, I mean, look, Jimi Hendrix, I would wear that outfit, whatever he was wearing. <laughs> I would wear that outfit oh, with he the was hat flying. and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's all uh, it's all just very circular if you think about it. Interesting. You know, but all of that, though, it, it built to this disco demolition night in July of 1979 over at Comiskey Park in Chicago. What happened? I mean, I've seen old video footage. <laughs> it, people were just spilling out from but, all over yeah, you onto know, the field. So the Loop, the radio station, the Loop, and Steve Dahl was a big part of that, and they were promoting it for a Sox game that they didn't anticipate would have a ton of people, and they were like, well, what if we do a thing where for the, like, a 50-cent admission, something to that effect, you bring in a quote-unquote disco record uh, as price of admission with the 50 cents, and we'll all we'll take it to the middle of the field and, and blow 90, it up. It was 98-cent tickets. Okay. I mean, still, yeah, yeah. You go in, you blow the thing up, right? And I mean, I'm telling you, pyrotechnics and teens, it's a match made in heaven. And then they had liquor. And then you knew that, I mean, it was very clear that something would happen. And I, I say in the documentary, you know, some people think that this was like an intentional sort of lynching of culture. And I honestly think that it was just more, what what's the word? Just more like like anarchy like mm. like let's have a little anarchy let's blow some things up and like blow off some steam type thing yeah i mean were there people who thought of disco as being shorthand for these other p- people you know and they were also mad about the burgeoning rust belt and disenfranchisement and like yeah absolutely they there was definitely people were touching on these feelings that were real that was actually part of what was causing this underneath but i don't know that that was the intention of the thing i know that when it when the control was lost and people were injured i know that that wasn't the intention this is reset i'm sasha ann simons pbs is out with its latest american uh, experience series show it's called the war on disco and we turn to one of the show's contributors who's none other than our ayana Contreras music director and director of content at our sister station, Vocalo. So back to where you you Mm -hmm. left off Mm -hmm. there, you know, many stations, they stopped playing disco kind of almost overnight. But disco didn't die, right? That that eventually evolves into house music. Correct. Here in Chicago. Here Here in Chicago. That's my vote. Talk about that and and your relationship with that scene. So here is the thing. One of the things I also mentioned in the doc is that ultimately anything that's shoved down people's throats is going to like have a backlash like I think that's a natural element of of like the the life cycle of an art form 
you know, making it into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. But what happens after that? It goes back into the underground, which is good because the underground is where creation happens. It's where incubation happens. It's where, you know, it's removed from commodification and it sort of becomes sort of art for art's sake. And I think, you know, the 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 small like house clubs and the little like Catholic school sock hops and sours they had a little little teen guy putting together like house things in the back. Like that is where this worldwide music phenomenon really gained its wings. I love that. So you wrote a book, an awesome book. It was talking about black artists and entrepreneurs in the music scene. It's called Energy Never Dies, Afro Optimism and Creativity in Chicago. That Afro optimism phrase. Tell us about that. I mean, how how does Chicago embody Afro-optimism? You know, it's like you have to believe something is better. I mean, what, think about these migrants, right? Like they're going to an unknown place to, and they have to believe that something is better to push them through this trauma. You're talking about the new arrivals that have about come today, here right. from the southern border. But I like to think that black Americans also were escaping trauma in the American South and heading to cities such as Chicago, which was a huge Mecca throughout the mid 20th century for African-American people trying to build a better life. Mm -hmm. And yes, we suffered from redlining and, you know, discrimination and other discriminatory practices, I'd say. But we also were left alone to our own devices with a whole lot of creativity to create a lot of things based on our belief that we could. And we did. You write that uh, Black Chicago is unique from other strains of, of Black culture. How so? I think so. I think there's sort of a, it, it, there's definitely an optimism. I, I, I like to quote Leslie Guy, and I think Leslie was like, I don't know how, <laughs> how this one phrase that I told you became so like, you know, stuck in my craw in a positive way so much. But she said she's originally from Philadelphia. She was at one point a curator at the DuSable Museum. And she said, the thing that strikes me about Black Chicago is hearing people talk about the happenings and what's going on. It always feels like it's on the verge of spring. Like it's everyone's leaning forward, Mm. like something's about to happen. That's interesting. Yeah. The best is in front of us. I mean, we've done a lot, us. but the best is in front of us. No I'm matter also, what. I'm also thinking about black publications that started here. Right? Absolutely. Ebony, Jet, uh, Soul Train. Right. Right. Cultivating that culture. That's right. I mean, the thing about Ebony and Jet, and there's a whole chapter in the book about Ebony and Jet in particular. Where uh, do you think I learned all the details <laughs> from you reading your go. book? Um, The great thing about Ebony and Jet in particular is they're broadcasting this new definition of what it is to be black in America and in the world. You know, this identity of, yes, we can. And let's go ahead and do this thing like let's Mm. black is beautiful. And here are all the myriad reasons why. And of course, it's definitely not about putting anybody else down. You know, I'm, I'm actually quoting Curtis Mayfield where there was a song that he put out that folks had decided was implicitly racist because it was talking about we are a winner but really it wasn't about anyone else it was just about the unflappable belief that we are a winner within ourselves we have what it takes to overcome whatever thing is holding us back you're the host and producer of the weekly radio program reclaimed soul it airs on wbez friday nights at 10 as well as on Vocalo on Thursday nights at 8 and Sunday mornings at 9. I want to give folks a little taste 
I'm Ayanna Contreras, and you're listening to Reclaimed Soul. Before this, you actually heard local music from the Reverend Stanley Keeble and the Voices of Triumph with Can't You Love Him. It's interesting because it's arranged and produced by Marvin Yancey, the guy behind um, all that stuff, uh, those uh, hits with Natalie Cole, like This Will Be an Everlasting Love, right? Didn't know he did some gospel, too, did you? Um, that's the guy who arranged uh, that particular song. And before that, we heard Syl Johnson and the Pieces of Peace with Concrete Reservation. And we also heard uh, Howard Tate with uh, She's a Burglar. We're going to ready to take a break. And when we come back, my girl, and I hope she's your girl, too, Linda Jones. Stick with me. I love that so much. You know, I'm so in awe of your your deep wealth of knowledge on soul music, Ayana. I wasn't kidding when I said I've learned so much since moving here and getting to know you. What's your favorite part about sharing this music and, and just making people feel so good? Well, you know, one of the things is there's sort of a dual audience for, for Reclaimed Soul, one of which I'm really affirming a reality of remembrance and, you know, this is the music of my life to type of connection to it but then there's people who really don't have that knowledge mm-hmm. and are just on that musical discovery journey and I'm hoping with the with the with the show I can really like you know cater to both of those audiences and meet people where they are that's the point like you know it's a very come as you are program <laughs> come as you are Ayana Contreras is the music director and director of content at Vocalo Radio on 91.1 FM And she's also the author of the book, Energy Never Dies, Afro-Optimism and Creativity in Chicago. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. 